six years old, I broke my leg. Welcome, everybody, to the Extra Podcast. This is episode number 295. Listen listen to that voice. Right? Isn't that beautiful? I really like listening to John's voice. Wow. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the compliments. It's amazing. Considering I blew it last week and totally lost my train of thought mid-sentence and got called out live (laughs) on air. (laughs) That's great. That was a good ending. Last time. I it thought. was, right? It just kind of sort of stopped. Just and then Jeff, it real is what Jeff it is. just took me to the mat. Yes. Yeah. But you're not fired. No, no. So I'm still here <laughs> and still hosting. So that's good, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. You guys can be the judge. Email your responses to extra at northview.org if yeah, you disagree. They should. They yeah. should. Yeah. They should let us know who they've liked. So here's some of the hosts in extra podcast history. Darcy Kuhn hosted about like 200 episodes or something crazy. Wow. And then, and then he, let's be honest, he got stale. (laughs) That was the stale or yep. Stale. (laughs) And then we kind of had a Rolodex of who's who of Northview pastors of just kind of a whole bunch of us, just a smorgasbord try to do it. Yep. And then I think now we're trying to settle into having someone like Mulder, John X files Mulder. Mm. Ooh, that's a great, that's a cool tag. That's a cool. Any, anybody around the table, X files fans. I will confess, this is uh, Matt, and yeah, yes, I didn't. I missed my intros, X-Files. everybody. So, Matt Glezos is with us this morning. Yep, huge X Files fan. I wouldn't say huge, okay. but whatever is just under huge, very big, sort of big. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's right. Sure. Okay, sort of big X Files fan. Yep. Are you gonna introduce the rest of us? Yeah, 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 yeah. Matt? Kendra <laughs> is here. Another pastoral intern in the immersed program, like myself. And Kendra has never seen an episode of X-Files. So I am neither fan nor foe of X-Files. I just don't know. Fair enough. Good. And Greg is also with us. I also have never seen an episode of the X-Files. Not Uh, one. uh, And and I don't even care. (laughs) I don't think this conversation is going to make me want to watch it. So I don't... Hey, you never know, man. All right. Let's see. Win me to your ways. I watched... Some of the reboot episodes that happened in the last couple of years, and I feel like I had to because growing up, I always got the teachers doing the attendance, and they would get to me and they would go like, "Mulder, hey, where's Scully?" (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, "What?" I was like 12. I had no idea. Huh? The the guy from Monsters Inc. What was that his name too? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I can go go both ways. Yeah, Yeah. was Mulder the dude? (laughs) Yeah. Fox Mulder. Fox and Mulder. Scully was the girl. Agent Mulder. Damn. I can't tell you how many times I heard that growing up. And they, they tried to save the planet? No, uh, no, no that's a, just an unfair characterization of okay. the, wow. the complexity, the depth no of the show. I have no idea what the show's about. Well, but FBI you at least know agents. who the characters are. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. I'm they're quite FBI impressed. agents, and uh, Fox yeah. Mulder just, you know, he had a way of, of seeing through the lies that were out there, even from his own government, which, I mean, that's a compelling beginning to any any show i think and there were greg there were lies that's a great that's a great story of how the individual mm-hmm. has autonomy to decide the truth outside of mm-hmm. any authority structure of people who might actually have more information than him wow did you just ruin x files for I almost can't. everybody that watches it <laughs> i'm just seeing it from a whole new light now and okay this is just fresh eyes guys getting a fresh little eyes. bit no it was it was great. I mean, it's a Vancouver. It's a show. I I really hope Netflix is going to reboot it. It was in a, it was filmed in Vancouver. Oh yeah, I yeah. didn't know this. Even yeah. the reboot reboot they filmed in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. 
I so. want it to come back again. It's funny on the reboot they had like Dana Scully and Fox Mulder Jr. Oh really? Yeah. They well I not really but but like they had another detective duo mm. that was like mirror image of those two. I thought they had babies. No. <laughs> I thought that's what you were talking about. No. That's what everyone was wanting through the, that was the tension of the show. Uh, oh really? Okay. Yeah. Added that there is <clears throat> But they were so wide they never you actually You can't it have together. a good TV show these days no. without some sort of romantic tension. Mm-hmm. So if you're wondering why we're talking about X-Files, it's because before we start recording, I was encouraging John that he needs to have a catchphrase to end the episodes. Right. That's it's really what establishes a good host. That's true. Greg, Greg's trying to help me out so I don't uh, blunder through it like I did last week. So at the end of the show, we'll have uh, Mulder unveil his catchphrase. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll try. And it'll be, no, I'll be good. We'll Hopefully I don't you. screw it up. I'll help you. So Greg, you preached this last weekend here in Abbotsford at the campus. I did. And you talked on singleness. I did. Yeah. Single people. Making singleness great again. Where <laughs> did you get that title from? I uh, Originally, I wanted to name it Christian's Mingle. Oh, but, that, that would have been funny. But too. I actually, the reason I liked this title better to make singleness great again is that was actually the goal of my sermon was I was trying to help people see that singleness is a good thing. Um, and the apostle Paul thinks it's actually a very good thing. Mm. It's better to marriage in for certain reasons, namely our devotion to the Lord and expressed through service in the local church. Mm-hmm. So that was basically what I said. I just kind of walked through the passage and tried to explain a bit or illustrate a bit what Paul's getting at in those verses and try to elevate singleness in the minds of people. I heard the feedback often I heard from people was if they had gone to the apologetics conference, Christopher Yuan gave apparently a fantastic uh, lecture on singleness, which I heard some people talk about in bits and pieces, but I didn't actually listen to it. Uh, I wasn't at the conference. And so it was kind of intentional for me to not try to track it down because I didn't want to have his way better <laughs> lecture <laughs> infiltrate what I was planning on saying. And so I thought it's just not going to be helpful for me because I'm going to try to. The sermon would end up being me quoting him for large sections. For large Awful sections. Yeah. You just end up reading your notes. Right. So we'll take we'll take any similarities as as uh, evidence of people passing on what he said to me in conversations and that influencing hmm. The sermon and also just of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right. So if there's things that really stuck out to you in both, if you had a chance to hear both and. Well, they're uh, common. I mean, it's biblical principles expounded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, what was what's great. about. Yeah, I right? think you would hope to hear some similarities if you're both preaching from the Bible. Mm. Yeah. And the way that Christopher, um, I guess, addressed his his topic time, he gave a lot of his testimony. Mm. And then from there, he went into what is actually um, sexual holiness look like. And so he started talking about a legitimate case for singleness, um, as being one of those ways where you can legitimately express your sexuality in a God honoring, in a God honoring way. Yeah. Right. It was an interesting, uh, passage to preach in a place like Abbotsford because a lot of people had really kind things to say Mm. and thought, you know, that was Mm -hmm. really great. Thanks so much for doing that. A few people, even in between services, approached me and thought I just flat misapplied the Bible hmm, in my sermon. Really? That, so a few verses I heard quoted to me. Um, one was the Genesis account of it's not good for man to be alone. And they're taking that passage to mean that it is not good for someone to remain unmarried. So Jesus was not good. So this is my <laughs> rebuttal. Was anything we do of our view of humanity, if Jesus somehow doesn't fit the good definition of humanity, we need to change how we're reading the Bible. 
Right. Because Jesus is the best human ever. Mm. He's the definition of good. Right. Yeah. Mm. And so, so I heard that verse thrown at me a few times in between services. I also heard um, the first Timothy language of how leaders need to be a husband of one wife and them uh, using this passage to tell me that uh, this hmm. Paul assumed that all reputable church leaders would be married, which my rebuttal was then too bad he was single. Right. Because hmm. he obviously wouldn't have fit his own category and he couldn't be an elder of a local church because he was single. And I even heard someone say to me when I responded with that by saying, well, Paul wasn't an elder. He was a church planter. And so I thought, well, there's a distinction hmm. that I'm not sure you can actually sustain right. no. any longer than that sentence itself. Yeah. But I raise those things up because I just, it gives us the, the sense, I think, of what's actually out there in terms of people's minds that, that it just is a really hard idea for us to think of singleness as a great thing. Mm-hmm. It just is really mm-hmm. hard for it to fit in our framework in 21st century Western Abbotsfordian life mm-hmm. that yeah. singleness is like, has to be weird. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I was in a class a few weeks ago when we were saying how singleness can be good and someone just felt this impulse have to chime in, but marriage is good too. And it's just interesting to me that we can't just leave. Yeah. Singleness is good. Right. That doesn't mean to say marriage is bad and saying marriage is good. Doesn't mean to say singleness is bad, but we, it's hard to just have that one statement just hanging there. It's really uncomfortable in Abbotsford. It's really uncomfortable. I think in a church in Abbotsford to have that, that statement Mm -hmm. made. Yeah, and it's a context is a big deal because yeah. uh, from you know my last ministry context was Westside, uh, downtown Vancouver, right. and there uh, the the majority of the people, especially from uh, you know when things started, were singles, and hmm. so it was a it was a very different culture. Now, there um, being single is is more common, in a sense you might say more more normal, more accepted. I, I think it is. I think that you know, but uh, the reasons why. Uh, you know, if single is great there, and, and maybe it is, it's not necessarily for the right reasons either, right? Yeah. Just because mm-hmm. it's it's accepted, just because it's common, doesn't mean that there's a biblical view of singleness. It may just be because, man, this is a this is a fun time, and mm-hmm. and we don't have the attachments and and all these other things. When in fact, uh, biblically speaking, there's a there's a purpose, there's a reason why it's great, and it has to do with like you pointed out, mm-hmm. your ability to to pour into the local church and. And not to say, if anyone was listening from Westside, not to say that's not happening. In fact, part of the reason that ministry has been able to be so flexible is a lot of people have that time and energy to mm-hmm. move venues. There was a time there where Westside was changing venues, setting up, taking down. And there was just an army of people who I think really, really took this to heart and said, yeah, this is what I can pour my life into. It was, it was a huge blessing. It's mm. great. Yeah. We had a question come in uh, from one of our listeners about Greg's sermon this weekend, talking about the gift of celibacy and getting that from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 37 to 38. And they're wondering if we could elaborate a little bit on the gift of celibacy. So why don't, let me read verses 36 through 38. Yep. Um, 1 Corinthians 7. Yes. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to. And if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. 
so again, I'm going to want to help us see that Paul's language of doing better is tied with what he said earlier about being devoted to the Lord undividedly. Mm -hmm. So, so the question is based on these verses that this, uh, brings up an idea of a gift of celibacy that some people possess and others do not. That's pretty con Like I've heard that before. Haven't we all heard that there's this idea that, oh man, if you have that gift, then then that road is open to you. But if you don't have that gift, then you should be looking for a wife as if that determines. Yeah. Yeah. And in some way, I mean, it makes sense because the, the, the plain reading of the text is that, look, if you are in a relationship and the passions are building, it's becoming too strong. It's a good outlet for you to express your sexuality in a holy way to do so in the only holy way you can, which is in the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife. So, so I get why they would say that there's this like either ability to control it or not. I, I think attaching some special language of gifting though to it is a little bit problematic. Mm -hmm. I only say that because a lot of people don't feel like their relational status is a gift. And I mean that married or single. They, they don't see it as a, as a gift. They see it as a reality of where they are. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the language is that it is a gift of God for us, but I think for us to elevate celibacy as a distinct kind of gift over and above a gift of marriage, um, is a little, it's a little problematic. Hmm. I, th I think so. And then it leaves people who are single, but think, I don't think I have the gift of celibacy. Then they're always feeling the sense of dissatisfaction and tension because, uh, God mm -hmm. hasn't given me the gift that I need. And so I have to find a spouse, but he also hasn't given me a spouse. And so mm -hmm. there's this, you're not, yeah. It's sort of a, a misconception of what it actually means to be single, which is an right. opportunity to express that that sexuality yeah. in terms of celibacy, right? It's yeah, and this probably isn't the right language, but the uh, I think some people feel like in order for them to really feel like they have the gift of celibacy, they have to be uh, almost asexual, like almost unattracted <laughs> to the opposite sex, because right. if they feel in them this this attraction to the opposite sex. They feel like, well, obviously I don't have the gift of celibacy. Mm -hmm. I don't have the gift of singleness because I, I have this inclination. Um, but I, I don't think that that's a really sustainable position from what the Bible talks about. I think the issue isn't that the guy doesn't have compulsions. Mm -hmm. The, the, the content of this verse is that the compulsions are there, that the urges are there, but they're, <laughs> they're controlled and right. they're, they're, utilized in the right way, which in the context of anyone who isn't married to the person of an opposite gender, mm -hmm. the holy way of living out your sexuality is, is abstinence. Mm -hmm. So is it helpful then to say that the situation that you are placed in, in your life, whether you're single or whether you're married, that is the gift that God has given you, your circumstances. And then the action of that is how you live you live your sexual life in line of yep. that. So single, yep. your action is to live a celibate life. And if you're married, then your action is to live a faithful life to your one spouse of the opposite sex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. That's Paul's language in first Corinthians seven, verse seven is that everyone has a gift. Some have the gift of singleness. Some have the gift of marriage. Mm -hmm. And then he gives teaching on how to live within that gifting mm -hmm. now. And he talks about all kinds of things earlier in the chapter. Um, one of the things that I didn't bring up in the in my sermon that uh, is interesting for us to think about was I quoted Rosaria Butterfield and Christopher Yuan talking about the need for singleness to be seen as something that could be fulfilling and all that kind of stuff, which mm -hmm. is fantastic. The context of that uh, quote 
is in response to the passing of the the gay marriage uh, approval in the United States and the language of we have to approve this and we have to endorse this as Christians because we don't want to condemn people to a life of loneliness. We need to affirm their ability to get married to whoever they want to as long as there's consent. And in so doing, we aren't condemning them to a life of loneliness. And their, their comments coming from uh, a woman who who uh, came out of a lesbian lifestyle and Christopher Yuan, a guy who is celibate and same-sex attracted. Their language was, the problem that we have as the church now in responding to this time is we didn't have a good idea of singleness before. Hmm. So now when same-sex marriage stuff comes along, the framework that fits in is, of course everyone's going to get married or else they're going to be lonely. Hmm. And so their comments were helpful just generally, but also pointing out, Kendra, what you were bringing up, that that this passage is all about how do you live holy hmm. with your sexuality in the state that you are currently in. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So if you're married, there's all kinds of things you should not do with your sexuality because it's not holy. Hmm. But if you are yeah. single, likewise, there's all kinds of things you shouldn't be doing with your sexuality because it would not be holy. So t- to put a bow on that, sorry, is that I, I don't actually think that celibacy that abstaining is a gift. Hmm. I think it's a lived out response to God's word. Mm-hmm. And every person, no matter what state you're in relationally, is called to be holy in how they view and use mm-hmm. their sexuality. Yeah, I was just thinking, <clears throat> I've thought about this a little bit. And I can't help but wonder if part of why we struggle with this so much is because of the culture we live in and how sex saturated it is Mm. and how we I think to a certain extent have bought the lie that in order to be a fully flourishing human being you need to have sexually intimate relationships Mm. and scripture just tosses that out the window and says no no look at Paul look at Christ especially Mm. Christ who is the perfect example of what it looks like to live a fully flourishing human life Mm. and did not experience sexual intimate relationships Mm -hmm. and i think we need to elevate that and remember that constantly Mm -hmm. and also like you're saying greg the the future of of all those who are uh saved in christ looking to their life is going to be one that doesn't involve that sexual experience right as as we go into heaven and so Mm -hmm. if we have that view of of humanity then uh, I mean, that may be one of the reasons why heaven itself, the whole uh, uh, life that God gives to many people seems pale because there's so this, this looming sexuality and, and not just that, but human earthly experience uh, in, you know, just pushing it to the max that that is what is the greatest joy. And the reality that God has something greater for us is so difficult to see through all of that, that other sort of uh, overwhelmingness. It, and Matt, when you say that, that yeah. eternity is um, sexless, so many people, because of our sex-saturated culture, mm. assume that like that means it's going to be super boring right? and like total lacking of pleasure, right. whereas it's, it's actually the opposite, yeah. that sex is now designed by God as something that humans do for procreation and for intimacy and all these kinds of things, but it is also, uh, it's, a, it's a preview mm. Of what living in pleasure eternally is actually going to be like in a in a sustained state of of mm-hmm. enjoying life the way it was meant to be enjoyed. And so it's, it's a, funny, people can hear there's a sexless eternity and they're like boring and they forget that sex is actually just a 
Right, it's just a signpost along the way right. to greater joy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I remember <clears throat> Norm Funk uh, preaching a sermon and one example that he, he used, to, he was talking about heaven and he said, just, just think about the fact that this, this paradise that God has designed, there will not, there's no orgasm in heaven. Mm. And, he, mm. and what he's saying is if that's true, if that means there's something greater, like we can't even wrap our heads around that. And that seems like yeah. a contradiction, like, but that's, that's what so much of the human experience is, yeah. is looking for. Yeah. And yet, um, that, so that it's, I think it warps our minds or, yeah. or it confronts our idolatry and it forces us if we're biblical to say, well, okay, then that means there's something greater that this is like right. you're saying, uh, mm-hmm. a foretaste of an even greater yeah. intense experience. And to expand it to foreign. other, other realms besides only sex. When we realize that eternity with, with Christ in a new creation is going to be all it, all it sh- could be in terms of pleasure. It, it means that every experience we feel now of, you know, having the good cup of coffee, having the good meal, yeah. enjoying a good sports game, all the, mm-hmm. a, a good movie, all of that, is going to be there, but totally unstained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely pleasurable without any abuses of it, any misuses of it, any little hint of, oh, this could be better. Every area of life is going to be the best we could possibly imagine. Or like you said, we can't even. Mm-hmm. It's outside of our capacity. Stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. Any other thoughts on singleness before we... Well, I thought it was... I thought the, the whole part about, as we sort of touched on it, that um, the church as a family needs to uh, get a better uh, vision of that family involving singles. So, mm-hmm. so the, practically speaking, the community group you know, experience, are, is there a variety? Is it just a bunch of young families who are there? Are there people of varying you know, uh, stages of life? And are we actively looking to engage those around, especially right. those who uh, are single? I think uh, as someone who has a young family, it's it's very easy to simply connect with other young families because, you know, on a practical level, you just know that they're, you know, kids screaming. And and we sometimes use that as an excuse to be like, well, they'll be more comfortable if we invite them over because they're used to uh, chaos. But I I think that's sometimes um, just a cloak when really Mm -hmm. what we're saying is I'm more comfortable with people who are in my same stage of life. And so to to invite over uh, the single, the widow, and just into whatever chaos you have yeah. that that's really a way of saying no I man I, w- I want to get to know you it's it's about the genuine love that we're we have for each other but yeah. there's a it's interesting this there. conversation on on the heels of last week's sermon on friendship mm-hmm. I'm just saying there is such a lack of true intimate friendships that we talk about hospitality and sometimes it just sounds like a matter of okay we've we've checked off all the statistical boxes. Like, yep, our community group has singles, has marrieds, it has older, it has younger. And so, yep, we're on our way. But is there a, a growing depth of, of friendship and relationship mm. there where there's where you can actually say, like, I have an, an intimate friendship with my friends. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think until we get to that place, it's hard. You can't just download that type of friendship. Yeah. It takes a lot of work, a lot of vulnerability. It's very awkward. It's hurtful. It's mm-hmm. time consuming but it is good for us. Mm. And so we talk about hospitality, but that only comes in the way of one-to-one relationship as you just continue to grow um, in life together and, sh- and share life together. So it's mm. not just inviting the single or inviting the widow into your home, but it's it's because you have a friendship and right. it's, it's you're committed up. to growing that yeah, together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. 
So I have no transition into what we're going to talk about next. We're just going to jump into it. Yeah, like a tag phrase or something? No. That should be, that should oh, be your tag phrase. That's right. What? I got no segue. Next. <laughs> next. Okay. Yeah, that'd be good. No, so uh, a couple of weekends ago, a movie came out. We've gotten some Oh, what do questions. you do with your friends? You go to the movies. You go to the movies. That's a great segue Thank into you. our next See, Kendra <laughs> It's is my first time on the podcast, so I thought already I'd, trying I'd contribute to steal something my job. useful. Look at that. <laughs> You're totally killing it. It's yeah, great. good job. No, so The Shack came out a couple of weeks ago. It was a movie based on a book that came out about well, almost 10 years ago now. And we've had some questions come in about, should we see it? What, are, how do we engage with this? I think a really good question that may come out of this after we talk about The Shack is how should we approach books slash movies that claim to be Christian, but maybe teach or are suspect in their teaching of Christian doctrine. It's a big topic. Mm. Yeah. So to talk about the shack in particular though. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. Only because that way I can almost remove myself from the conversation because I haven't actually read the book or seen the movie. So now I can. (laughs) So helpful. We're glad you're here though. I can totally (laughs) punt it to my friends to my right here. Yes. Uh, Well, I read the book 10 years ago. And, uh, my response was sort of, I think like you're saying, John, um, that as I read through it, um, the theological inconsistencies with what it seemed like he was trying to portray in terms of the Godhead, in terms of all these things, uh, as, as a Christian who read my Bible, um, that was, that was problematic for me. So I came away from it saying, uh, you know, I'm not sure that it, it's funny. I came away with a pretty critical view of it. Uh, a friend of mine, though, uh, said, you know, I, I really think there's a way, there's some ways in which we can engage with uh, the non-believer through this book. And I think mm-hmm. that was the thing that uh, for so many Christians was, uh, I remember hearing stories about, you know, doctors who would buy a case of them and just give them to every patient. And and the, and the thought was, because the story is accessible, the story is engaging, mm-hmm. uh, whether you think it's well-written or not, but it, it does sort of draw you in. And, and I think that is true, that there is probably people who aren't believers who started yeah. thinking, uh, hmm, I wonder about what's underneath or reality right. as I see it. The, the problem is where that book led them in terms of answers about who God is. Right. I think it was tough. It's interesting. A few years back, um, before we knew that a movie was coming out, I had some coworkers at the hospital. I'm a, I'm a nurse there. And um, one of my coworkers was, found this book. She stumbled upon it. I think one of her patients actually gave it to her. And so she's reading it. She's thinking, this is amazing. Like, I didn't realize this God of Christianity actually entered into pain with people. And it, it really addressed the problem of, of pain and evil and suffering in the world. And uh, when you work with people who are dealing with pain and suffering and, and there's evil all around us, it was a very attractive thing. And so that was, that was a neat point where we could start building some traction and talking about, yeah, those parts are true. Mm-hmm. But then have some flags up for some of the other parts that, if you're not careful, are going to be misleading you about this true God. Mm-hmm. So about the shack in particular, mm. here's, I just can't not talk. That's my problem. <laughs> Way to go, Greg. Uh, so here's something that I've heard from people who read the book um, and didn't particularly get the massive outrage about it. Mm. They're like, yeah, of course, there's some spots in it that don't feel like good theology, granted. Mm. But a consistent piece of feedback I heard was it's just it's a story. Mm. And are we asking Young, are we asking Paul Young to to do more? Yeah, thank you. The author, are we asking him to do more 
in a story than is actually possible. Like, is he expecting to out every view he has about theology in the context of this story if he's wanting to use this story for particular story reasons? So that's where I think the tension is for mm-hmm. a lot of people is they, they didn't know or they, they weren't totally comfortable with treating it like a pure theological textbook. And they, mm-hmm. they didn't right. want to look at it that way because they thought, if I want to read about good theology, I, I want to read a serious theologian. Whereas if I want to read a story that might encourage me, this might be a good option. Yeah, so think, that that's where the, yeah, the gray area for a lot of people came in, mm-hmm. which now, interestingly enough, Paul Young has done hmm. in straightforward theological um, writing. He, he articulated a lot of the views that undergirded his writing of the shack. Um, it's called a book, a book called lies. We believe and lies it, we believe about God. Yes. Thank you. Lies. Hmm. We believe about God. And in it, he talks about things like God is good and we are not is mm-hmm. a lie that we believe about God. Mm-hmm. Um, as though uh, one of the other ones was that that hell is separation from God is a lie we believe about God. Mm-hmm. He, he goes through and talks about um, basically some pretty historic heresies mm-hmm. of the church mm-hmm. and says these heresies are right, that Augustine and his view of human um, depravity is wrong. Pelagius and his view that people are born good with a proclivity to sin was right. Hmm. Like he, he basically will affirm in this book, ancient heresies that have been condemned by the church. So when you realize that, I think it gives a different color to the book in the sense that yes, it's just a story, but it's a story that's undergirded by some pretty held, uh, pretty strongly held theological convictions that, the historic church would just say, yeah, that's not actually a part of what we believe Christianity to be true yeah. about. Right. And, and I think we should be, make it clear, too, that people that, that write these things don't do this maliciously. No, no. They, they're, nice man. They're doing these because they want people to, to believe in God. Mm-hmm. Um, and just makes me think of a, a quote that I was seeing the other day. It's from John Piper, and it, it, it says, if you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts mm-hmm. to God. You get converts to an illusion. This is not evangelism, but deception. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be really careful about how we cut things off, not cutting things off, but how we mm-hmm. e- express things to people when we try to attract them to the faith, not to cut things off, mm-hmm. but yeah. to be clear with what we're saying. Yeah, and I'm not sure if, if Young's uh, intention in writing the shack was as an evangelistic tool or technique, but even if it was just a straight fiction book, if that was his intention, I don't think it's fair to say that we're uninfluenced by fiction. So especially when yeah. I think, mm-hmm. you know, as kids, we read storybooks, we're influenced by them. They shape the way we think about things, even if we know they're not really true. They These mm-hmm. things do have a washing over us effect in the more we expose ourselves I mean, in our culture of, of rom-coms, like we talk about our mm. idea about relationships and sexuality, like media's had an influence on us. It's not claiming to be this ultimate truth. It's claiming to be a story. Mm-hmm. And yet that story in- influences us. And so especially what Young has done, he's, he's written a story about a real person, about the Trinity, about God himself. Mm. And so you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, mm. and they're portrayed in somewhat right character and somewhat not right and then somewhat we're not sure Mm. and so that when you're dealing with a real person and you're not portraying them properly in a story and then you're not thinking critically as you read the book or watch the movie 
those do unintentionally start to inform the way you think about this God mm. of the Christian faith. Yeah. Writing a book is not a neutral act. It's not, no. It's, it's for a, a reason and it's mm-hmm. advancing a certain view. I think what, what is Tim Chalice calls this didactic fiction, I think is his, yeah. his yeah. term mm-hmm. for it, which I think fits, yeah. right? It's, it's not just a story. It's not an allegory. It's, mm. it's a real, supposedly real envisioning of, of the Godhead. And, mm-hmm. and so there's, problems all over the place because yeah. I mean, uh, in, you mentioned Greg, that post that you sent me to by Tim Challies, which was all about the, uh, the, the, the challenge, even the, the wrongness of portraying God, uh, and God so the father, God, the father, right. Not, yeah, of course not God, the son, Jesus came and already portrayed himself in, in human form, but that's where even the difference mm-hmm. between a book and a movie, there's some differences there as well, right? right? Because now you're, you're looking at, um, a physical representation. A physical representation of God the Father, which yeah. is is clearly uh, a sin in terms of the, the yeah. second commandment. So. so, and that, yeah. yeah. The other thing that I found interesting about uh, the shack in terms of its its origin is that uh, it Paul Young wrote it because his wife wanted him to provide their uh, six, seven kids with a with a way for his children to understand how Paul Young, as he, as he said it, looked at God in a different way. How mm-hmm. he, through his life experiences, who has, a, uh, we need to say from the get-go here, that Paul Young has experienced some very traumatic things in his life that he's had to process and figure mm-hmm. out how can a good God exist if these horrific things have taken place in my life. And so he writes The Shack as a way of processing and communicating with his kids. This is how your dad found healing and healing in the God that I believe in. And so with that impulse, he decided to write the book, print enough copies to give to family and close friends. And then the thing took off. So this idea that, that he wrote this to get rich or he wrote it right. to be this, like, mm-hmm. make a name for himself. All of that is is just unfair. Right. It was a dad trying to communicate to his mm-hmm. kids how he's processed deep hurts and still come out on the other end loving God mm-hmm. and seeing that there's a good God who loves you even though terrible things happen to you. So when you realize that, you think, okay, so there's, there's the motivation piece. Mm-hmm. And yet that still, though doesn't necessarily excuse the the foundation of the lies that he's trying to uh, fix about what we believe about God. Hmm. Right, because even in that, he's he's trying to be a, a good dad, which many dads do, and trying to explain. But there are many dads who who love God and are trying to explain it, but but don't have biblical theology. And so, in the explaining hmm. of it, th- that. Um, they do they do harm to their children because they're explaining things about God that are not biblical. And I think that's where right. we would say, okay, motivation is good. I, I get it, yeah. but um, if it's not rooted in in Scripture, and if it's not, you know, then it's not ultimately helpful to your children or who or anyone else. And not to be too critical, but I think that's that's as I came away from the book thinking. Man, if I really wanted to know who God is and I had this book, then mm-hmm. I would come to some very unbiblical, untrue uh, conclusions. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. That's that's like what Piper is saying, of course, that that yeah. leads me to not the true God, but a, a sort of a made up God right. um, that fit maybe fits better with maybe our culture. But right. 
because then it's not ultimately the God who saves. It's not ultimately the, the truth, um, the gospel that, that saves. It's another. Yeah. Right. So I, I, what I don't want people to be thinking now is that they're hearing Northview pastors say that, like, you can't read the shack or you're sinning. Right, because right, that was the, the writer's original question is, what should Christians do with this now? Should yes. we read it or not? So I think this goes back to what we've said multiple times in the podcast and in sermons, that we engage with the world around us according to our conscience, as sieves and not sponges. Mm-hmm. We do it with a discerning eye, like the Bereans did, testing what we read and what we see against scripture. But also, I, I think Tim Challey's point about the movie is a valid one. Uh, we, If it would betray your conscience and you feel like watching The Shack because it portrays invisible imagery, God the Father, if you think that, that mm-hmm. that's breaking the commands of God to not make God into an idol, then don't watch the movie. It's fine. You can have, you can have conversations about culture without having to witness every thing that the culture makes. Right. Uh, You have that freedom, but reading the shack wouldn't be committing the same kind of, I don't even think it would be committing sin to read about Mm -hmm. in that way. So I think if you want to have informed conversations with your friends about it and people who you want to help guide towards thinking biblically and you want to read it, that's, totally up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, we're not here be doing like a book burning. We're not here no. b- banning anything. No. We're not also saying that there's nothing of substance that could be helpful. We're mm-hmm. just saying, don't be sponges, be yeah. sieves. And yeah. in this particular work, we think that there's a lot that's going to fall through mm-hmm. and not much that would stay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's even helpful. I mean, just to to sort of extend, because we were talking big picture about books that yeah. another series that comes to mind is the uh, His Dark Materials. I don't know if anyone ever read that, Philip Pullman. No. No. Um, it, I just think of it because he, uh, in particular, was writing sort of the um, the antithesis of the Chronicles of Narnia. And so mm-hmm. he saw what Lewis did and said, boy, he's really captivating the minds of, of young people, which is what Lewis wanted to do and leading mm-hmm. them to this, this genuine Christian Orthodox belief. I want to do that, but in the opposite direction. And so he explicitly uh, sort of tries to subvert and, and he's a masterful writer. Mm-hmm. And so um, I read that in particular because when it came out, they made one movie. I think it didn't do so well. Um, but that's that's one where you know that the author is trying to subvert Christian truth, um, doing it in a very compelling way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the question is, do, do I read it? Do I let my children read it? And, and mm-hmm. probably the answer is, well, it depends on the, the age of, of the child, right? It, mm-hmm. it probably would be very helpful. I think it would be for a, a young person of the right age to read this mm-hmm. with a critical mind um, and say, boy, I see what he's doing here. I, I see the biblical response, but that, I think that's the act of engaging in, in culture. We're not fearful of it, but yeah. we're, we're reading it. We're recognizing its influence and saying, I have a response. That kind of thing is what is same thing for the shack. I think it's a little more ambiguous. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Appreciate all of your input. I'm sure our listeners do as well. It's been another fantastic week. We look forward to having you with us again next week. All of our fantastic listeners. This is John Mulder signing off. What's the your sign off is out be? there? Is Sorry, I, it's, it's I interrupted you. Greg interrupted me. Greg ruined his, it. Okay, now I'm ready. What's your What's going to be your your catchphrase? The truth is out there. Okay, but wait. Quick question. Yes. Do we need to make it like more Christian? I don't know. Like the truth is out there and his name is Jesus. The that, truth is Jesus. The truth. The truth is Jesus. That's got a ring to it. That just it's, sounds very Sunday schooly, doesn't mm, it? That's true. The truth is Jesus. Okay, maybe we'll revisit next time. Maybe. Maybe maybe Greg and I will sit down 
and talk about it. Probably not. Or you can email your suggestions. Ooh. Ooh. You can email in your suggestions. Yeah. That is a great idea. To extra at northy.org. The phrase has to have, the truth is, and then you need to help us fill in the blanks of what's the pr- appropriate right. way to finish that Mulder-esque mm. phrase. Off. Yes. This is, hopefully we get some answers. I, I hope so. All right. Thanks, guys. 